Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. So today we're going to be talking about something that is very... Uh, I never thought that I would say that this is an issue of high drama, uh, but it is, and that is uh, the post office. So we're going to find out what's going on with the post office uh, and uh, to lead us, to guide us on that conversation, uh, we have Kevin Kosar. And Kevin is uh, works with me at R Street as the vice president for research partnerships. So welcome to the program, Kevin. Thanks for having me on, guys. So I want to talk about kind of recent events and controversies related to the post office. But before we get to that, I think it might be a good idea to kind of get some groundings about just the kind of state of the post office in general, uh, you know, there's been a lot of issues going back many, many years. Um, and while I think, you know, a lot of people use the post office uh, to get and receive mail, they may be a little bit hazy on e- even some basic things like how the post office is structured. It's kind of, you know, it's a federal agency, but it's a little different than a uh, a lot of federal agencies. So maybe let's just start with that. Um, what is the post office? <laughs> well, the, the U.S. Postal Service is an independent agency of the executive branch. It is uh, one of about 18 government corporations. All right. So what's a government corporation? Well, it's a wholly governmental entity. Its employees are federal government employees. But it's not like your typical bureaucracy. It's got a lot less red tape. It has a lot more operational freedom. And it has those operational freedoms for the purpose of enabling it to successfully uh, engage in commercial transactions that aim to make itself funding. So unlike your typical cabinet agency, like the Department of the Interior, the Postal Service does not rely on taxpayers to you know, providing money through the congressional appropriations process each year. Instead, the Postal Service sells an awful lot of postage, uh, more than $70 billion worth of postage each and every year. Um, unlike a cabinet agency, the president does not nominate the head of the Postal Service and submit the nomination to the Senate. Instead, the Postal Service has a board of governors of nine individuals, up to nine individuals. Presently, it has six. Those six individuals are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Um, There's always some Democrats on the board and some Republicans on the board. The balance shifts depending on, you know, time period we're talking about. But that board of governors chooses the postmaster general and the deputy postmaster general, and they kind of engage in the oversight. They're like the corporate board overseeing the CEO. So that's a primer on what the Postal Service is. 
you want to talk about finances or something else next? Let's talk about finances because, uh, as you said, the post office is supposed to be a self-funding agency making its money via, you know, commercial transactions, selling stamps. Uh, and so how, how's it doing at that? Well, you know, it used to be the post office department, uh, up until 1970, and it did live off appropriations. Then it was changed over to this government corporation model in 1970. And for the most part, the Postal Service did all right for decades. Then 2008 occurs, the Great Recession, and mail volume drops. Why did mail volume drop? Well, most of the, what gets put in the mail is sent by businesses. The coupons. Um, yeah, it's not, it's, yeah, it's solicitations. Um, it, you know, a lot of people think that letter writing, you know, me writing you a letter, Josiah, or vice versa, you know, that's mostly what's in the mail. No, that's a teeny portion of the total mail mix. Most of what goes in the mail is sent by business. So when there's a recession and business pulls back or goes out of business, uh, mail volume drops. Now, Historically, over the 20th century, whenever we had recession, depression, mail volume went down and it came back. But 2008 was different because businesses were already in the process of migrating from paper communication with their customers and potential customers to electronic communication. And what we see is mail volume did not go back to the previous heights. We were up around 213 billion mail pieces per year in 2008. We are now at around 143 billion mail pieces. The economy came back. Mail volume did not bounce back. And that means the Postal Service has got a revenue problem. Postal Service also has an expense problem. It's got attributes of its business that just naturally drive up costs year after year. For example, our population is growing. We have more and more residences. Postal Service has to go there. That increases cost. Postal Service has a highly unionized workforce. It's got four unions inside of it. Each one can collectively bargain every four years over total compensation uh, and also the various rules for the shop floor. You know, who gets to use that machine and who's allowed to stand in that space and do that work? Four um, unions? Four unions, yeah. So that also creates upward pressure on costs. Um, as a result, Postal Service has been running structural deficits um, for years. And a lot of parcels are being put into the Postal Service right now, particularly because of COVID, and that's bringing in some new revenue. But the long-term picture for the Postal Service is, is not good. Um, it struggles to cover its costs, and it also has about $150 billion in unfunded obligations, which include pensions, uh, health threat benefits promised to future retirees, plus the more than $14 billion the Postal Service has borrowed from the U.S. Treasury thus far. Okay, so if you had a, I guess, you know, a typical business, um, and they have about a third reduction in their 
business or thereabouts. Uh, my, my math is not completely accurate, but I think that your numbers about the volumes seem like it's about that. Uh, that's obviously, that's not good. Uh, but you think that if you have to deliver fewer letters and parcels, uh, you might be able to make up for that just by, by downsizing everything, right? Since you don't, since you're, you're getting less revenue because you're doing fewer letters and parcels, but you also have fewer letter, letters and parcels to deliver. Uh, so is it, are there just, um, is there an inability to resize yourself because of uh, fixed costs or pensions or, you know, obviously uh, union pressure, they don't, you know, no one wants to, you're downsizing the workforce. People are going to lose their jobs. They, people don't like that. Is that, is that kind of, uh, there's resistance to change from that? Because I know that, you know, that uh, the post office does compete against uh, FedEx and other folks for, for packages, not, not for letters, of course, but uh, those other companies, you know, they seem to have been able to, to I assume they have faced similar issues with people not sending as much stuff. Uh, they seem to have, have weathered it okay. So are, is it, are there just like special structural factors that prevent the post office from adjusting? Yeah, yeah, and there's there's a variety of factors. For example, each year when Congress uh, passes a very small appropriation for the Postal Service, which covers the cost of the Postal Service delivering free mail uh, to and from the blind uh, and visually impaired, the Congress keeps dropping in this requirement that the Postal Service deliver paper mail six days a week. For years, the Postal Service has been begging Congress, please quit doing that. But Congress keeps doing it under the misimpression that voters out there really want that. Um, and, you know, some of the some of the mailers do, in fact, want that. You know, I think magazine publishers would prefer Saturday delivery so that the magazines that they're releasing at the end of the week have a chance of getting in readers' hands before the start of the new week. So that's one example. Um Second issue is, yeah, it's the workforce. I mean, 80% of the Postal Service's operating costs is compensation. And that includes both the people who work for the Postal Service right now and the huge number of retirees they have. Um, you know, 20 years ago, the Postal Service, 20, 25 years ago, the Postal Service had a workforce of close to 900,000 employees. Because they're heavily unionized, you can't just downsize them, you know, with any ease. So what the Postal Service has done has just been to let people retire and then to not replace them, which is a really crude, reactive tool to managing your workforce and cost size. And when people retire, they're not completely off your payrolls. You got to pay them their retiree health benefits. You got pensions to pay. So it's it's hard for them to control their costs in that way. And uh, getting back to the changing mail, you know, Postal Service's cash cow used to be first class mail. First class mail is a class of mail that moves faster than any other letter class. And to send it, you have to pay more. 
you know, you pay more than you would if you were sending, a, you know, a piece of advertising mail or uh, marketing mail. Um, and the problem is that business is decreasingly using first-class mail. You know, all those um, solicitations that you used to get from credit cards, you know, back in the roaring 90s, you might get five of those in a week. Those were sent first class. Um, that stuff's mostly gone away as people move to online bill paying. Um, so the Postal Service now, more than 50% of what they deliver is what people derisively call junk mail. And unfortunately for the Postal Service, that stuff is real low margin. They do not make a lot of money off of it. And magazines have been a perennial money loser for the Postal Service. Um, magazines get a, uh, you know, what may be described as a preferential rate uh, under postal law. And, uh, you know, effectively other mail classes are subsidizing the delivery of magazines. Um, so, yeah, yeah, the Postal Service had a hard time um, adapting. And again, you know, they've got to go everywhere. They just do. Um, and their retail network, what we call post offices, um, they don't really look at them as for-profit units. If a postal, post office costs more money than it brings in, they don't really view it as something that they should shut down. It's part of their public service requirement that they have post offices that are accessible to everybody. So yeah, they got a lot of post offices that are just money losers. Um, and that's a tough, tough situation. So in the past week or so, there has been a lot of noise on social media about uh, the Trump administration having some type of midnight massacre of terminating uh, people at the post office and uh, somehow undermining the, the ability of the post office to to process mail-in votes for the election in November. Tell us a little bit about that. There's the whole conspiratorial side, but I suspect that those conspiracy theories, those the politicking that's going on, isn't the real story. Tell us what's what's actually happening from your perspective. Yeah, yeah, we're at a really unfortunate political moment where the sort of stuff that's being talked about about the post office and about the kind of separate issue of voting by mail has gotten all balled up and gone into weird places that are little connected with reality. Um, part of the blame for this lies with, uh, with the president. Um, Mr. Trump, despite his peculiar um, quantity of attention that he has put on postal issues, I mean, he talks more about it than uh, any president that I can recall, he frequently gets things wrong and confuses things. Um, he has, you know, gone from talking about voting by mail as um, a liberal plot um, to steal the election. And then he's kind of slid over into talking about the Postal Service as being the, the, the tool for this liberal plot to steal the election. And he went so far as to say that he was going to block any sort of funding Congress might give to the Postal Service to stop the Postal Service from implementing universal vote by mail. That makes no sense, put frankly. Um, whether or not an individual in any part of our wonderful country is able to vote by mail is determined by state, local elections law. And it's determined by whether the state and local elections officials um, 
set up that system and fund the system to be able to vote by mail. This is not something that the Postal Service has a say in. They're just the people who move the ballots. And the president further confused things when he said that, yeah, you know, Democrats want to give the Postal Service all this money and, you know, the Postal Service needs that money to deliver all these ballots. Good grief, no. Anybody who knows anything about the Postal Service and its processing capacity knows that that is nonsense. The Postal Service, even in its kind of diminished volume situation, it's still doing 142, 143 billion mail pieces a year, which comes out to between 2.7 and 2.8 billion pieces of mail each week. And maybe we'll have 150 million people vote by mail. That would be a smashing record. That's a rounding error compared to the volume the Postal Service, Postal Service doesn't, and the Postal Service is gonna be paid to carry those ballots by local election officials and anybody who decides to slap a stamp on a ballot they drop in the mail. So yeah, things have gotten really confused. And then you've got this weird conspiracy that some in the mainstream media have uh, started and which liberal activists and the Democrats have just gone hog wild on. And this theory is that, you know, president's gonna disrupt the election and steal it by using his minion DeJoy, who he put atop the Postal Service, to disrupt the mail. Like suddenly the mail system is going to be, in the words of the New York Times op-ed columnists Krugman and Warzel, the Postal Service is going to be crippled. Um, my goodness, people. You know, and you've got people on social media taking photos, uh, mail collection boxes being removed, and saying this is part of the conspiracy. There was... Uh... One congressman who posted a video of himself chained to a mailbox, uh, I guess, I mean, the, the idea would being that he was going to save that one, like if people <laughs> chain themselves to a, a building or a tree that's scheduled for demolition. Well, you know, that, that I, I didn't see how he had chained himself to that mailbox, but if he's doing that, he actually may be breaking federal law. <laughs> if the worker can't easily get into that collection box, then he is, in fact, disrupting the collection of the mail. Uh, look, there's a bigger thing that most members of the public don't know about, understandably, but that, you know, the media should have reported on, but in their rush to, you know, get lots of clicks, they just didn't cover the postal service by law 39 usc 101 e requires the postal service to run an efficient system of mail collection processing and delivery and to that end the postal service always has been going through a process of shifting its network assets that means opening post offices in new places closing them in other places that means moving mail processing facilities around reducing their numbers, increasing the number of machines, and sometimes decreasing the number of machines. Now, for the last 10 years, the Postal Service has suffered from an overcapacity of mail processing um, machinery. Again, mail volume gone down 30%. So they have, over time, in conjunction with conversations that they have with the unions, been taking these mail processing machines out of service in various places. So... <laughs> This is normal business, yet in this weird political moment, this has been construed as a fascist conspiracy to stop voting by mail. It's really 
quite nuts. Well, in some sense, <laughs> Trump's not really helping himself when he when he's off on campaign rallies, saying something about that he wants to run for it. You know, ultimately wants to run for a third term because uh, he was spied on, and they really owe us another term. Uh, so, I mean, you know, he sort of. Uh, you know, he 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 dwells in conspiracy theories. And so it's almost isn't it's almost sort of fair game that there's this conspiracy theory that is being used against him. It's almost like I don't know that I feel any sympathy for him on this one because he he <laughs> he you know, he, he peddles so many conspiracy theories himself. Yeah, no, no, no. He he really is his own worst enemy. Um, and uh, I'm very thankful that I don't work in the White House and, you know have to basically behave like the elephant keeper walking after the elephant with a broom and a scoop. Um, it's not a pleasant situation. Um, I mean, the good news is for, for your listeners is that um, if they want to cast their ballot by mail, they should do it, put it in the mail early, you know, just because that's always the smart thing to do. Um, you know, one thing we postal geeks are worried about is like if the postal workforce gets, really hammered by covid you could have a lot of people not able to report mm-hmm. their jobs and when you got a heavily unionized workforce swapping other people in to cover those shifts that can create logistics hiccups and you don't want to be disenfranchised just because you waited an extra week to drop your ballot in the mail um but you know financially the postal service you know contrary to rumors it's not going to go broke um this year it's got uh 14 billion dollars in its bank account it has an additional $10 billion in borrowing from the treasury it can do. Um, it's going to be okay. Both postal management and the head of the American Postal Workers Union told the Washington Post this past Friday, delivering elections mail is going to be no problem for us. We can do it. So let's just talk a little bit about you mentioned some of the complications that could happen if you know if there's another surge of covid and such and you know the president as usual, as we've alluded to has really talked about the sort of conspiracy theories of uh there there uh, the democrats are going to steal the election through uh, you know the stealing votes uh, that are mailed in and so forth and while i don't buy into those ideas, you know, we have been, you know, we've, what, decades and decades of doing elections by, you know, in-person, you know, machinery and so forth. And we have certain protocols, certain procedures to ensure, uh, you know, election integrity. And we haven't done anything at this scale, particularly this rapidly. And I don't really expect you to comment so much on, what may be happening at the state level and such, but on the on the postal side, you know, I, I'm assuming that the heightened risk from you know a a surge of mail-in ballots isn't zero. What you know, what really is the risk? How manageable is it? And what steps should be taken as a practical matter uh, to ensure election uh, integrity? Well, the postal service itself has already taken steps. They started doing this in May before DeJoy came aboard, um, but the news of it only broke after DeJoy came aboard. They started reaching out to states and saying, you know, look, guys, we're going to have a lot of election mail coming in. Do yourself a favor and get stuff in the mail early. Basically, please don't do what was done to us in New York City when a local election administration official shows up 
with more than 30,000 piece of election mail the day before the election and expects the Postal Service to somehow hustle that stuff out the door <laughs> in a sufficiently timely manner. Um, in short, what the Postal Service is trying to do with elections administrators is flatten the election mail curve. People under many state laws are able to get their ballots early and they're able to cast them early. If more people do that, then the quantity of stuff going in the mail around election day um, is going to go down and be more manageable. And that's very helpful. Um, where it's tricky is that you know state local election administrators are sometimes laboring under laws that are very, um, they aim to make franchise as easy to exercise as possible for voters, which we would say is a positive thing. But it'll say like you, the voter can request an absentee ballot three days before the election. Like, how is that supposed to work? You know, you get on a website and you ask your local administrator, give me a ballot. I don't want to come in and pick it up in person due to COVID. So mail it to me. Suddenly the postal service is in this disastrous place of having to hustle this thing to your place. And then the, the voter has to turn around and put it back in the mail. And guess what? If the ballots don't show up on time to be counted, who's going to get blamed? The Postal Service. It, it, you know, it's a messy situation, and you're right. We're doing more voting by mail this time around than we've ever done. Um, but it's, I think it's going to be managed. But I do think there are going to be spots where it gets bollocked up because that's the way it works in this country with the laboratories of democracy. Some people that do experiments and they turn out well, and others not so much. This seems is a big experiment. What so in terms of the vote by mail, is it the case I guess it's the case that in some states the ballots just have to be postmarked by election day. They don't actually have to, you know, arrive other places maybe they have to arrive by election day. Do you have any sense of of what the the lay of the land is there in terms of the different state requirements? I I, I was looking the other day, it seems like it varies uh, quite a bit depending on where you are in the country. Yeah, it does. It is quite a, it is quite a patchwork, which, um, you know, some states are, are taking steps to, uh, revise their rules. Um, but it's, uh, you know, for me, I feel like other than COVID, the wild card is, um, all these lawsuits that are being filed by both the left and the right about the various rules. Um, and, throw in some of the last second legislative uh, and administrative action. For example, um, you may have heard that uh, down in Louisiana, um, the election official there, the state election official, has basically declared that uh, if you want to request an absentee ballot, ballot because you're concerned about COVID, um, you have to show that you have tested positive for COVID. Now, realizing <laughs> 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 that we're having some trouble rolling out testing uh, and that the lag between getting tested and the results, um, you know, this is the sort of thing that we are like, oh my goodness, I love our laboratories of democracy, but whew, sometimes some of these guys are just mad scientists and this is not going to out, turn out so hot. Uh, but doing elections in a kind of nutty fashion is, is age old, um, you know. Decades ago, it used to be said in Chicago that you could vote early and vote often. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think ultimately, you know, one of the things that I've been encouraging uh, people who have a have a public audience is that um, they should encourage the American public to um, not have the expectation that we're going to know for sure all the election results by the uh, 
end of election night, uh, and that maybe it'll take a few days, maybe it'll take even longer, and that that's okay, because it's better that we follow the rules, count the ballots, and proceed in a deliberative manner, um, and wait for the correct results. There's no need to think that there's a conspiracy afoot just because you don't have pundits calling the election by, you know, 1130 on election day. So, uh, I am interested just in kind of, uh, you know, some of the security issues involved. I know people have, there's been a lot of nightmare scenarios that people have talked about or different uh, hypotheses. You know, uh, if you have like about uh, ballots, mailed ballots being lost or stolen or, uh, you know, there used to be a thing uh, when I was a kid, kids would kind of sometimes do as a prank where they would go to the mailbox and fill it with water, um, <laughs> like a hose or something, right? Of course, you never did that. You were a good guy. No, yeah, I was. Uh, I didn't have any friends uh, when I was in high school, so it wasn't it wasn't so much of an issue. But um, you know, obviously, you wouldn't know individually which sort of ballots are in a mailbox, but maybe you would try and guess depending on the overall composition of the neighborhood or other things like that. I mean, you know how how much how much. Uh, confidence do we have in the overall security of the system to try and try and avoid, you know, what I I think, I think um, everybody is very concerned about the outcome of the election. Yeah. Um, Some people are really concerned about a Trump win. Some people are really concerned about a Biden win. But of course, you know, the the third option is you just, you don't know who won. Uh, And, you know, um, we did have, we have, we have had, a couple of examples in American history where, you know, it was not just a matter of election night. In some, in some sense, we, we never really found out who won. Um, and of course, America survived, but that's something that you would, you would want to uh, avoid, if at all possible. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The allegations around the Kennedy-Nixon election, um, you know, real reasons to expect that there was widespread fraud there. You can go back even further, late 19th century, uh, when elections were whew, wild west. Uh, yeah, and more recently with the uh, with Florida and the hanging shads, and that illustrates a point, which is that so far we humans have not figured out any voting technology that we can have 100% confidence in. Um, you know, we've had issues with machines. We've had issues with paper ballot design. Um, You know, I know our colleague Paul Rosenzweig of R Street was part of a group who looked closely at um, the kind of electronic voting machines and all and internet voting type options and basically said, no way. This technology is not ready for prime time. Uh, We do have places that have, you know, these touch screens and these digital devices and that sort of stuff. And there have been reports of things getting bollocks, bollocks up. Uh, famously, back in the Iowa primary, when they had the, you know, it wasn't a voting technology, but it was a caucus vote tallying technology, the Democrats' app broke. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, nothing is perfect. It's absolutely the case that, uh, you know, some mischievous kids want to shove a hose in a, in a mailbox and flood it. Um, you know, they may destroy uh, <laughs> some ballots in the process. Um, You know, one practice that states and localities really should uh, clamp down on is the whole ballot harvesting. 
you can't do it many places, but there are some places that allow a single individual to go to other individuals and say, yeah, I'll collect your vote for you and deliver it to the election administrator. Um, that's not good. That brings up the nightmare scenario of, you know, these people getting loose in a retirement home or maybe a place where people are suffering from Alzheimer's and other memory issues and bullying them and just stealing their votes. Um, so ballot harvesting as a practice should not be allowed. Um, but yeah, you know, I have no doubt that come post-November, we are going to have stories about localities that had issues with voting by mail. Um, we'll probably have stories where, you know, the postal service goofed, you know, they didn't cancel a letter, you know, put that stamp on showing that they had received it. And so there's a question of, did the ballot arrive in time or not? We already saw that in the primaries a little bit. Um, but so it goes, um, you know, any, you know, like I said, any voting technology is never going to be foolproof. Um, we just hope that the that the results are sufficiently modest that nobody can suspect that it actually tilted the election. Okay, so we typically ask as our final fun question. Not that all of these questions haven't been fun in their own way, but uh, we often ask our guests. Uh, what their favorite uh, movie or TV show, some sort of cultural product related to the topic of the conversation is. So if you have, we'll give you a choice, either a favorite postal movie or a favorite election movie. Uh, Ooh, boy, there's a, there's a tough choice. Um, I guess I would say my favorite movie that had a uh, postal aspect to it would be Jacob's Ladder. Mm. Decidedly intense, grim film, um, but ultimately with a Christian theme um, and a really remarkable ending. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, regarded as a classic. So, uh, you know, as, as people are not, if you're still if you're still socially distancing, you might check that out on Amazon or one of the other services out there. Um, okay, well, uh, so our guest today has been Kevin Kosar. Kevin, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urban Cowboys.